The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Open your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 26. There are two verses in this chapter that we take for our text this evening. Uh, this chapter details the four coverings that drape the framework of the boards and the bars of the tabernacle. And it speaks also of the veil that separated the inner compartments, the holy place from the holy of holies. But then at the end of the chapter, there are these two brief verses, Exodus 26, 36, and 37. And thou shalt make an hanging for the door of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen wrought with needlework. And thou shalt make for the hanging five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and their hooks shall be of gold. And thou shalt cast five sockets of brass for them. Our subject once again this evening is the door of the tent of the tabernacle. And we find just these two verses of description in Exodus. And even though we only have these two verses, that does not tell us how highly significant that this door is as it represents the way that we access the Almighty God of heaven. You'll not see God and you will not have a relationship with God. You will not speak to God and you will not live with God. You will not do anything with God but be ignored and cast away from him in the everlasting torments of hell if it is not for this door. These two verses mention it, but the subject actually consumes the rest of the scriptures to explain what this door is and why you must enter through this door to find salvation. Now, of course, you're, you are familiar with the symbolism. You know who this door represents. The way to God is only by, is by only one door of access, and that is Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God. Now, as we've learned, the tabernacle represents the presence of God, and to go into the presence of God, to see the glories that are on the other side, to be with him, that is, to see the glories that are in heaven, there is only one way that you can get there, only one door of access, that is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that is the way, through Jesus, that is the way that we access the other side, where we see all the eternal joys of heaven. Now, that door is Christ, and all of the other symbols that uh, we study in the tabernacle have to do with, with this, Christ's redemption, what he did in redemption, and all the benefits that are received by the work of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Now, in our next picture... Uh, we show the, the, uh, the door. Uh, this is what we began our study last week with, this door. It's described in verse number 36 as a, as a fabric curtain that's embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet that's sewn into a base background of white fine linen. And our picture doesn't, doesn't show the detail of how exquisitely that this, um, that this was woven. Uh, we don't even know for sure what the patterns of it were. I mean, this is an artist's rendering of it, and depending on who the artist is, that's the, that's the picture, whatever's in his mind's eye is the thing that we will get. But this much we know, even though we don't uh, see uh, the beauty of it maybe in this picture, it does represent Christ, and several times in the scripture, 
Jesus referred to himself as the door. And he said that you must enter by him. In John chapter 10, he said that he is the door of the sheep. And you might note that because in scripture, the sheep are synonymous with God's elect. He is the way that God's chosen are permitted to come into God's presence. And since he is the door... And entrance into the tabernacle represents him. You can be sure that this curtain was a beautiful curtain, that it was impressive, that it was substantial, that it was outstanding in its craftsmanship as all other parts of the tabernacle were. Now, our picture doesn't show it, but and you might not uh, be as impressed as the priests were when they first saw this finished product. They were the only ones that could go to see the inside, and they knew that this curtain must be woven in its artistry to reflect the beautiful artisanship that's also on the inside of this tent. And then another thing that we might note about it, uh, we've studied the drab badger skins that were the last covering that went on the structure, and remember that that was to show the plainness of Jesus, that it was the lack of, of physical attractiveness or social status so that no one would want Jesus because of he was such a handsome man or because he was such a rich man. But when you walked around the tabernacle and you saw that drab covering that, that covered that outside, you would walk around and you would come and you would face the door and immediately you would encounter something that was beautiful. Here is something that is wondrous, something that is desirable. And so at the door, the tabernacle becomes an, an intriguing place that a person would want to enter. And certainly we can compare that to Jesus. While uh, the life of Christ may impress many, many are impressed with him and laud his virtues. At the same time, there are not many who want to investigate further. There are not many who want to make their lives like his. And so they walk all the way around the outside of Jesus. But one thing they never do, they never square up at the door. They never see how marvelously wonderful that Jesus is. And if they stay on the outside, they will never understand the beauty that's on the inside. There is salvation when you walk through that door, and on the other side of the door, everything changes. Life changes, desires are different, the direction of life is different, there's a new feeling, there's a new sense of purpose. All of that happens when you come face to face with Jesus Christ. Well, I'd like to continue now with the first part of our outline that we began last week. And we began with this very simple statement that the door is a person. I realize some of you have not been with us in our study of the tabernacle and uh, many of the symbolism that we've already discussed. Uh, this might be a little bit foreign to you. But we're talking about how the many different parts of the tabernacle represent who Jesus is. And it's a typology of uh, things that become clearer to us in the New Testament. And we learn uh, from Scripture that that the door, that this door of the tabernacle represents the person, that the way to the Father, of course, is not a literal door, but the door is emblematic of a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, and without him there is no avenue of access. God blocks all other ways, so that the only way that we reach him is through faith in Christ. So he doesn't permit anything that we do to access him because we aren't worthy. There, there is nothing in us that is good enough. All of our ways are defiled. God is perfect. God is holiness. God is righteousness. 
And only by a certain righteousness is anyone accepted to come into the presence of God. None of us has that righteousness. In fact, the scripture says that the best that we can ever do is nothing but filthy rags. So we can't, we can't come by anything tangible that we do. God says that the only way that you come to him is by faith. Faith is the vehicle by which the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is transferred to us, or to use another biblical term, is imputed to us. Now, at the end of the last lesson, we discussed verse number 37, that the support for this door was five pillars that are overlaid with gold, standing upon a foundation of brass. And those five pillars symbolize that our faith rests upon Christ. So, Our discussion last week centered on this, that Christ is the pillar of our faith. Faith must be attached to something. It never stands on its own. Faith is only as good as its object. And because we trust the object, that's how we get the thing that we need. Uh, The object is what does what needs to be done. And if the object of our faith is the omnipotent Son of God... If he is the God of the universe, then we know that he can do everything that he promised that he would do. Since Jesus is one with the Father, and that his power and his power is equal to the Father, his will is the same as the Father, then we know that faith in him grants us the salvation that we desire. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I have believed. That's what Paul says. I have believed, and that is faith. And he says, he will keep that which is committed. Commentators differ in their opinions on what Paul meant by this commitment. What is this commitment? Was it the gospel? Was it souls that he had won to Christ? What is it? Well, whatever else that it might refer to, we do know that Paul was near to death when he said this, and he was willing to die without fear because he knew that his soul was safe. There was no danger for him. It's safe because of his faith in Christ. And so his faith was that solid foundation, uh, built on that solid foundation who is Jesus Christ. And just a note from last time, and I won't go into it again, But we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6, and there we found five pillars of our faith. Christ is wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And so our faith, the object of our faith, is greater than anyone of any religion, anything that anyone can base their faith in. Faith in him is the door, the only door, as the way to God. So first we understand that Christ is the pillar of our faith. Now we enter into some new information tonight uh, going on with the sermon. Next I want to show you that Christ is the passage to life. Jesus' foundational statement about the passage to life is familiar to you. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 5.24 he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life now that's a very curious statement that's helpful for our understanding of the timing of regeneration now before i show you this in the verse i'd like for us to back up to to john chapter 3 
and the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. In the third chapter of John, in verse number 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. He said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now we understand this term, born again, is synonymous with regeneration. Regeneration is the awakening of the soul to life. And Jesus said that regeneration must occur before a person can see the kingdom of God. Now in that verse, seeing is the same as faith. And so regeneration then precedes seeing, or we would say that it precedes faith. In John 3 verse 8, you're familiar that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit moves mysteriously uh, upon the soul beneath our consciousness so that when he regenerates, we don't actually perceive what has happened to us. What we see is the result of the Holy Spirit's work, and that is that we place our faith in Christ. Now, Jesus confirmed the same in John 5, 24. And if anyone knows the order of salvation, I think it would be Jesus. I think if anybody knows the ordo salutis, I think that we could trust Jesus. And he said that the one who believes in him has everlasting life and will not come into condemnation. And then he finishes with this last phrase. He says, but is passed from death unto life. Now, the verb tense in the original language would read it this way. He that believes has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is already passed death unto life. Now, you take John 3, 3 together with that, and knowing that a person without Christ is dead, that is spiritually dead, then we understand the Holy Spirit brings the sinner to life for this purpose or in order to put his faith in Jesus Christ. And we must understand that. And we also must understand and not be confused that regeneration is often spoken of as encompassing the completed acts of quickening to life, of repenting from sin, and expressing faith in Christ. So in other words, there never would be a person who was regenerated who was not also granted repentance and then given the gift of of faith to believe in Christ. So the result of this according to Jesus, is passing from death to life. Now, in that sense, if regeneration included only bringing the dead sinner to life, that wouldn't be enough. When we talk about regeneration in this way, this is not eternal life, but this is the awakening. This is the thing that enables the soul to make a response. Repentance and faith are fruits of regeneration. They're always the guaranteed fruits that pass the soul from condemnation into everlasting life. Now, if you ask, well, why is that so important? Well, it is important because it enlightens the understanding of who is responsible for initiating the act of faith. We can never initiate it. We, we only respond. We can't, we can't initiate it because of the deadness of our hearts. And so when we say that salvation is of the Lord, we mean, we mean it because... There could, we would never give anyone any credit for it but God because it's only the act of God that can ever lead to salvation. And then further it shows that faith as a gift of God is given to those that God chooses. You say, well, how do you, how do you get that from it? Well, because faith is not inherent in anyone. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 2. Uh, there are wicked men, he said, and they don't have faith. And then further in, in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he says, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? 
Now if thou didst not receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Now if you received it, why dost thou glory as if thou you had not received it? So God is the one then who makes the difference in us by initiating faith through this regenerating act of the Holy Spirit. So the accomplishment of salvation through regeneration, repentance, and faith is to pass from death to life. The Holy Spirit initiates and then faith in Christ is appropriated for our justification. Because we are justified, the Bible says there is no reason for condemnation. Now, on another note, the scripture in John 5:24 is also a guarantee of everlasting life. Once the transaction has taken place, there's no going back. This is not reversible as some teach. Salvation can't be lost because creating a new person in Christ by giving spiritual life can't be undone. This is an act of God. You don't undo acts of God. And thus we have Paul in Romans chapter 8 speaking of glorification in the past tense in verse number 30. Obviously, we're not yet glorified. We won't be until we die. And yet Paul speaks of our glorification as being so sure it's as if it's already done. And then he follows in verses 31 to 33. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who could be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justified us. God is for us. He justified us based on giving us his son, which was his greatest possession. So how would he ever let that transaction fail of its goal? And so when the scripture says that we've passed from death unto life, we needn't concern ourselves in any way that somehow this justification that's been affected by repentance and faith in Christ would ever turn out to be meaningless. We did it for nothing. Oh, God ensures that it reaches its goal. God gives everlasting life. God never gives temporary life. In fact, when the Bible speaks of life in this sense, there is no other meaning to it. It's always everlasting. There is no true life in, in God's realm unless it is eternal life. And so that begins as soon as regeneration, repentance, and faith have taken place. In other words, it doesn't take physical death for this to begin. As John 5.24 says, you've already passed from death unto life. So this door is emblematic of the person on whom our faith stands and in whom faith results in eternal life. Now secondly, this door, the door, is a proposal. In John 10 verse 9, Jesus said, By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. You know, in our understanding of the monergistic work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, then we must again avoid confusion by stating that the acts of repentance and faith are synergistic. God grants repentance, God gives faith, but both of those are enacted by the individual. There has to be a cooperation between God and man in repentance and faith, but also understand that this cooperation happens without fail due to a change in our will. When we're dead, we can't cooperate. When we're dead in sin, we can't cooperate. Neither can we choose to, neither do we want to. But when the Holy Spirit acts, that's when the will is enlightened, and that's when we freely choose to come to Christ. 
Now, as, as we talk about things like this, our interpretations of it are often misconstrued, and it's complained by others that we believe that God forces people to be saved. Well, if he did, if God forced people to save, I, I actually don't know why that would be a problem, because who would complain that, that God saved them, that they were given eternal life and they won't go to hell? Who would complain that God kept anybody from acting against his own best interest? And then it's often said, God won't force you to love him. That God wants you to love him because you want to love him. And that's a very nice sentiment, but it never happens. It never happens because 1 John tells us that we love God only because God first loved us. And John's assertion of that is meaningless unless, unless it is only that God's love has caused us to love him. But, but that be as, it may, be as it may, when we come to God in repentance and faith, when our will is enlightened, we make choices that others can't make. We make a choice that, that we never could have made before. And with this quickening to life and regeneration, we, we want to come to Christ, and so we freely cross the threshold of that door. And so these synergistic acts of repentance and faith allow salvation to be a proposal. Jesus says, if you come to me you will have life. Now we know from our, from our studies that no one can go into the door of the tabernacle but a priest. He is the representative of each Israelite who has brought a sacrifice to the brazen altar. And the priest would take the blood of that sacrifice into the tent and he would push away the inner veil to enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. In the New Testament, that requirement changed and that happened when the veil was torn in two when Jesus was crucified. So everything that the Old Testament priest did for the Israelite is now accomplished by the believer who has become a believer priest. The symbols have ceased, and now we offer spiritual sacrifices rather than physical sacrifices to God. So there is an invitation, there is a proposal to come, and nobody depends on a priest to do that for him. We are the believer priests who have access to God by our faith in Jesus Christ. Now the proposal in John 10.9 has some important aspects to it that I'd like to point out. First of all, the scope is wide. The scope of it is wide. And once again, our belief in the sovereign acts of God are maligned when considering the scope of salvation... It's as if that we believe, people would claim that we believe, that, that uh, God is trying to keep people from salvation rather than inviting them to receive it. And, and the confusion is cleared by understanding that no one would be saved unless God did something. Unless God acts first. Everyone's headed to hell. And God is the one who graciously opens this door for sinners to come. And the fact that that anyone fails to come is not owed to any lack of mercy and grace in God. It's all owed to the voluntary rejection of the gospel from those that hear it. Jesus' proposal said, if any man, and any man there, the word for that is the Greek word tis, T-I-S. You know what it means? It means anyone. There are no restrictions that are placed on those who can come to Christ, not the nationality, not the ethnicities, the race, or any social status. Tis in Scripture includes Jews and Gentiles. In Revelation 5, it shows that people from every kindred, every tribe and nation will be in heaven. 
And before the throne, there's this representation of this broad spectrum of humanity that comes from all across the globe. In the last part, the last chapter in Revelation, the invitation is given in Revelation 22:17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. There is no list there of any exclusions. All may come. Whosoever will may come. And so the last chapter of the Bible ends with this proposal. Whosoever will may come. Now we've always taught that. We've never taught anything different than that. And we've certainly never said whosoever won't may come. But some will look at this verse and, and so they assume then that everybody must be willing. Well obviously not everyone is willing. You know friends and family and workmates and neighbors by the dozens who won't come. You can't talk them into coming. With all the best efforts that you can do, even offering them a hundred prepaid visa card or whatever, you can't get them to come. And the reason they don't is because they don't see the same door that you see. The unwilling don't come. The one who is willing is the one who has received the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. And they never would be willing to come until they receive that call. And obviously not all receive the call. There are thousands that die without Christ. They die never hearing the gospel. So you, you, you've actually got to work all of that into your theology to make any sense of this phrase, whosoever will may come. Now the important point for all to understand is the command to preach the gospel in this. The gospel is the means by which this proposal is made. And the gospel is indiscriminate. We only need to know one thing about who should be given the gospel. One thing that we need to know. It saves all who believe. I don't need to know who will believe. God knows that. He's the one that saves. I don't have to do anything but be indiscriminate with the gospel to give it to every person. Now, I'd like to say one more thing about the scope. Are there some who teach that the scope of Christ's death is limited while others don't? Well, the answer to that question is yes, but there aren't any but universalists who believe that the scope is unlimited. They just say everybody's going to go to heaven. All others, no matter what other stripe that you have, believe that it's limited. Either it's limited in its effect or it's limited in its design. Now, we can't believe, as most do, that it's limited in its effect. That is, that the atonement will save some, not others, dependent upon what they do. We don't limit the effect. We believe that the effect is always to save, and it will save. We believe that it's limited in its design. In other words, God accomplishes everything with it that he designed for it to do. He designed it to save, and so it saves all for whom it was designed. And this design is coextensive with who? The whosoever wills. It's coextensive with them. For everyone that accepts the proposal, an atonement was made to save them. And for those that don't come, no atonement needs to be made. You go back to Romans chapter 8. Paul wrote, if God delivered his son for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? Salvation is a part of all things, isn't it? So I think probably without question, it's the most important of all things. So you do the math on all this and all for whom Christ, uh, God gave Christ, 
that is one and the same with the elect. And that's the subject of that entire passage in Romans chapter 8. They're the ones who receive all good things at the hands of God. All things, Paul said, works together for their good. He goes on, who shall lay anything to their charge? They're God's elect. God gave Christ for them. He gave his son for them. So the scope is wide. And we can preach to all people because God doesn't restrict who can receive the gospel, not by any characteristic of, that, of what's in that person. That has nothing to do with who receives the invitation. Now, secondly, the scheme is action. As much as God is sovereign in salvation, we, that is you and I, we are responsible to act on it. Now, the Bible teaches both. It teaches sovereignty and human responsibility. Spurgeon said that you'll never be able to resolve the conflict between the two if there is, in fact, a conflict. He said it's like looking down train tracks. You get up close, the tracks are separated. But you see them off in the distance, they, they seem to merge. Donald Gray Barnhouse said it this way, Over the door to heaven there's an inscription that says, Whosoever will may come. And as you pass through the door on the back side is another inscription, Chosen in God before the foundation of the world. And the first part is just as true as the second. The first part is human responsibility. You must come. And on the back side is God's sovereignty. And so the proposal is, if any man enter, God's sovereignty says that you came because that was his plan. Now the priest couldn't do anything in the tabernacle unless he entered. Now remember we said that a wall keeps people out, a door lets people in, but a door that's never opened will also keep people out. And you understand that if it was God's intention to keep people out of heaven, that he could have done it very simply. He could have just refused to make an opening. He could have refused to let anybody in. He would just put up the walls and say, you can't come. But is that what God did? Well, no, God didn't. Because we go all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and read it all the way to the end of the Bible, this unfolding story of how God made a way for people to enter. Now, here's a, here's a wonderful thing in the gospel. And uh, some of you might want to take comfort in this. And that is there is no requirement. There is never a requirement that people understand the doctrine of God's sovereignty in election. Now, there, there's nothing wrong with telling people the truth of that the very first time that you meet them. Although I'm not sure it's the right approach because even seasoned Christians have so much trouble understanding it, believing and accepting it. So you might not want to start with eternal election as the first thing that you do in a soul winning uh, opportunity. You don't need to do that because Jesus said you only need to do one thing. That person who's given the gospel of Christ only needs to do one thing. That's to enter. And it doesn't do any good to understand 40 doctrines and stand on the outside and never go in. So... You need to know this one thing. You're responsible to answer the call and to go in when the gospel is preached. And you go in by repentance and faith. So action must be taken whether or not you fully understand why you decide for Christ. Now we know, we do understand, we decide for Christ because God put that understanding into our heart. He moves first. But whether you understand that whole process is not that important to the initial belief in Jesus Christ for salvation. So these other doctrines are not critical for you to understand. This is important for you to understand. 
Believe and you will be saved. Repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. So this secret work of the Holy Spirit that takes place in the heart in regeneration is not something that's well understood or something that you must understand before you can receive Christ. All that you must do, as I said, is repent and receive him by faith. Now, notice, as I've said many times, Bible language is actually this. It says to receive Christ. And I'll mention again, nowhere in the Bible does it even say one time that you are to accept Christ. Accept puts onus on man to take. Receive puts onus on God to give. Now that might be just a semantical argument, but I prefer to stay with the Bible's language. So you receive the gift that God gives, and you must be willing to receive it. And then once you've got that far in understanding what's offered, who's going to refuse this gift? You don't refuse it because God did something that gives you the understanding of the value of the gift. So the scheme of salvation is action. You must enter. You must take this door and then God will give you salvation. And he'll not give it unless you come by faith in Jesus Christ. Now the last point of the proposal, I really don't have time to uh, finish tonight. But I am going to mention this and we'll end just a little bit early I think and then we'll take up uh, more next time. The third point is that the supply is immediate. That this salvation that it's offered is not something that you need to wait for. It's not that it takes time to prove yourself worthy. It's not that there are a lot of other things that you need to take care of before God says, well, I think finally you've done enough. So I'll give you salvation. You know, someone said that all good things in life are worth waiting for. But I can tell you that the best thing in life, the best thing in your life, you don't have to wait for. God will give it to you. And God gives it to you here and now. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm impatient about things that I'm promised to receive. Amazon has prime shipment. It gets your stuff to you in two days, sometimes in one day. Why? People don't like to wait. I don't like to wait. Now, a few, a few weeks ago, I... I ordered a new computer from Dell, and it's blazingly fast. It's got a PC, PCIe M2.0 NVMe SSD. If you don't know what, what that is, you can just trust me. You click on it, and before you do, it's already there. I mean, it's, like, it's divine. All you have to do is think it, and it shows up on the screen. So I was, I was anxious for this, and I, and I was anxious. I wanted it now, and, and I didn't... I, I, I couldn't get it now because Dell didn't care too much about how much I wanted it now. If you want it so badly, they just say, well, then it's worth waiting for, isn't it? Well, I, it was worth waiting for, but I sure am glad that salvation is not like that. God's gift is greater than anything you can ever get. And God says, I will give it to you now. And that's faster than an NVMe SSD. So the proposal here is, if you enter, you will be saved. Now, I want, to, I want you to note this because we are going to take it up next time that sometimes salvation seems like an abstract. That it's a, it's a concept in the mind. It's far out there in the distance somewhere. It's way off in the future and it's something that we'll never receive in this life. Roman Catholicism teaches that salvation can't be known until you leave this life. They have a vested interest in keeping people guessing because that's how they fund the church. 
That's how they keep people dependent. You can't know. That's what they say. And so they keep you feeding the system. And then someday you may find out that, okay, you're saved. In fact, the Catholic Catechism says that if anyone teaches that salvation is assured, they are cursed. Now, they don't want you to think that way. They don't want you to think that you can know that you're saved. But that's not what God says. Did we not just see it in John 5, 24? Jesus said, you're regenerated, you believe, and he says, you have already passed from death unto life. That is everlasting life. So the Bible teaches that salvation happens in the here and now. There, there's no waiting game. The supply always says eternal life is in stock. God has it right now. There aren't any delays in shipment. It's prime salvation that's faster than Amazon. You can have it today. Now, we're going to talk about this next time. What does it mean to be saved? And that's interesting because although we have eternal life now, salvation comes in three tenses. The past, the present, and the future. We were saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. But until we get to that, remember this, that no matter the tenses, you are forever safe. You are safe and secure the very moment that you put your faith in Christ. This door is open for you. It's inviting you to come, to open it. And on the inside, once you pass through that door, are the unfathomable treasures of Jesus Christ that are found. Just like the tabernacle. As soon as you get through the door, there's all the beauty of the inside that God put there that represents the Lord Jesus Christ and all the splendor and majesty of who he is. And that's what happens to you when you put your faith in Christ. Finally, finally, you see what all of this is all about. Why we have a church service every Sunday. Why we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why we have this great hope of eternal life. Why we're changed from what we were to what we are now. It's all because we've seen the inside. We know who Jesus is. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for salvation that is guaranteed by our faith in him. Lord, not one person who has trusted you to take them to heaven will ever fail of that goal. You've given everything that we need to make sure that we are in heaven. We thank you, Lord, for the other blessed doctrines that we've looked at tonight, thinking of regeneration and how the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is the one who makes that effectual in our heart, who calls us to salvation. And we're thankful, Lord, that before we were ever born, before the foundation of this world, that you had your people that you chose who would come to you. And in time, that gospel is preached and you ensure that it will be preached to those who have been chosen to receive it. Lord, we thank you that salvation is all of you. We claim nothing for ourselves. We put all of our trust in you who provides all things for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.